So good morning and uh, welcome to all of you, uh, particularly if you're visiting. Uh, nice to see you here. And so today marks the start of our main fall teaching series, Jesus, Our Neighbor. And uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking together at a chunk of Luke's gospel. And we're going to be looking at it through a particular set of glasses. Now, I have reached that uh, ripe old age where I've discovered that I need different glasses for different uh, activities. So I have one set of glasses that I use to read books, and I have another set of glasses that I use to look at the computer. And uh, if I mix up my glasses, everything looks a little bit off. And so when it comes to reading the Bible, there are no particular glasses we are told to read it through, and there are many legitimate ways of looking at it. Uh, we can put on different lenses and see different things when we look at it from different perspectives. We're going to be looking at it from the perspective of Jesus as our neighbor. And this is not simply a quirky or odd choice. We know that Jesus himself put a really high premium on the importance of loving our neighbors. In fact, in Luke uh, chapter 10, in a passage that we'll be looking at in a few weeks' time, Jesus agreed with the lawyer who questioned him that the way to inherit eternal life is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So here's Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, walking this earth and telling us that if we want to find our way to eternal life, it's implicitly bound up in our love, not just for God, but for our neighbor too. Now, that's, that's a big deal, right? This is not just a kind of optional little piece on the edge, or wouldn't it be nice if we loved our neighbors? But Jesus is saying in that passage, no, this goes to the heart of what it means to be human and what it is to find our way uh, to heaven. So, and then we also know, actually, from John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, uh, in the message paraphrase, Jesus himself became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And in that, Jesus, in becoming the incarnate Son of God, came into a context, a place, and lived as a neighbor. And so, when we start to think about these uh, neighbor-shaped glasses that we're going to be reading Scripture uh, through, uh, we're not doing something way off track. We're doing something that is going to take us, hopefully, uh, into new learning uh, about how we can love our neighbors better. And for any of you who are visiting in our community here at Granville Chapel, we have been thinking a lot about neighboring over the last few years. And some of our people have been trying innovative and interesting approaches to neighboring. So I'd like to invite Joan to come up at this point. Joan and Barry are two of our key leaders in this whole kind of neighboring push. 
And I was talking to, uh, to Joan the other day, and she told me that she was getting ready for a pig roast. <laughs> Joan, uh, the, the pig roast, I believe, happened. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that was all about? Yes, well, um, we have been involved in our neighborhood um, over the last, I would say, seven and a half years of being intentionally um, getting to know our neighbors. So this isn't like our first event, okay? Um, but we had applied for the small, I, I knew I was gonna forget the name, neighborhood small grants from the Vancouver Foundation. And we had done a series of fire pit Fridays in the summer. And we came to the end of our fire pit Fridays and we had some money left over. So the neighbors were saying, well, what's next? What are we doing next? And we said, well, let's, let's have a pig out. And um, <laughs> we actually had exactly enough money to get a whole pig. And um, we didn't roast it ourselves. But we invited our neighbors, and we had about 56 people come. They provided all the other sides and accompaniments, some for vegetarians, don't worry. And uh, we even had a, a young neighbor have a bubble tea uh, bar for, for us. Sweet. And uh, people had a good time? We had a great time. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah from, from age one to 95. Uh, it was fantastic and spanning the globe, of course, with um, stories. And we also coincided with the Vancouver Foundation's uh, fall event that started uh, this week, but we had it a little bit earlier, um, called On the Table, where they encourage groups of friends or neighbors or colleagues even to gather together and talk about, share a meal and talk about some things that are important um, to you. So we had a few guiding questions and it really drew out some, some interesting things about our neighbors. Uh, Joan and Barry, you continue to inspire us. Uh, what's next? Well, maybe we'll have a soup night. We usually try to um, you know, when the, sun, when the weather changes, it gets a little bit harder to be outside, but um, we will have a soup night in the fall and probably a Christmas party um, in the season to come. That, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, you inspire all of us with the things that are possible. So uh, thank you. That's great. <laughs> mm -hmm. So without more ado, Let's uh, roll up our sleeves and plunge into Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel begins, as you'll probably remember, with the extended birth narrative of Jesus in chapters 1 and 2, and then it documents Mary and Joseph's return to their hometown of Nazareth. At the end of chapter 2, we get the story of Jesus visiting the temple when he's 12 years old, and then chapter 3 describes the ministry of John the Baptist and that finishes up, that description finishes up with Jesus' baptism and then that long section of the genealogy of Jesus. Chapter 4, which is where we are today, kicks off with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and then he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, says Luke, and he begins his public ministry. And it's not long after he has begun his public ministry that he heads back to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And it's worth just underlining that. We believe at this point that he was aged about 30 years, 
and his public ministry is just beginning. And so that means for 30 years, he has lived apparently incognito, just being himself in the tiny town of Nazareth in Galilee. What was it like to be a neighbor to Jesus? What did people see during those 30 years? A young carpenter? A loyal son of a widowed mother? Joseph doesn't get mentioned much after Jesus' 12th birthday, and presumably he died at some point in there. Did people just see one of a group of siblings? There's, there are stories in the, in the New Testament of his brothers and sisters. So, he was part of a large family group. So, we don't really know what people saw, but when Jesus headed to the local synagogue, that was what you did when you were living in Nazareth on the Sabbath. And that was what Jesus had done, presumably, for his whole life. So, no one was very surprised. And when, as part of the service, the traditional synagogue service, he was given the opportunity to read from the scroll of Isaiah. He was the one that unrolled it, and it must have gone quite a long way through, because Isaiah is quite a long scroll, and he unrolled it and unrolled it until the point where he reached the passage that we know as, um, as, as uh, Isaiah 61. The passage was probably well known to all the people present. They would have heard those words before. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stopped before reading on to the line about judgment. For all those people listening to that reading... They would have understood that passage as the prophet Isaiah's description of the coming servant of the Lord, who at some point in the future would come and shake up the old order. But on this particular morning, once the reading was finished and Jesus had rolled up the scroll, handed it carefully back, and sat down ready to teach, they were in for a surprise. Because this is what Jesus said today. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that would have taken them by surprise. That was different. I imagine there was a gasp, even a thrill that went through the crowd as they heard those words. This was a big claim. Here's Joseph's boy, and he's saying that this scripture of hope for the poor, the downtrodden, those on the margins, is actually coming true in the here and now? I imagine the chatter was a lot to do with the status that Nazareth stood to gain by having one of their own emerge as the champion 
of change. Wow. Wow, we're onto something here. This is looking good. There's no sense uh, reading this, these verses at this point in the story that people are against Jesus. In fact, they seem to be quite for him. It's like, whoa, we're onto something good here. This is new. But then Jesus actually voices what they are all thinking. Apparently, they've already heard that Jesus has done some miracles down in Capernaum. Capernaum is about 50 kilometers away from Nazareth. And they're all thinking, well, you're making the big claim here. Let's see. What are you going to do, Jesus? What miracles are you going to do for us this morning? Because uh, we'd like to see miracles. That would be nice. And, uh, and then we'll believe you, and uh, we'll be your biggest fan club, and together we'll take this on. We're in. We're up for this. But then Jesus does something that absolutely sucks the air right out of the room. For instead of riding the wave of hometown emotion and popular approval, he tells them in no uncertain terms that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And what's worse, he backs that up with reference to two little stories from the Old Testament regarding two of the greatest prophets. In the first story, he tells how Elijah, he was the prophet, remember, who prayed for drought, ended up being sent outside of Israel to be cared for by a widow from Zarephath in Sidon. Sidon's not Israel. Sidon's over the border. Sidon is them, the others, enemies. Not us. And he points out that there were many fine widows in Israel who could have been tasked with looking after Elijah, but weren't asked. Ouch! And the second story that he tells described how Elisha prayed for Naaman, the Syrian soldier leper. And that he didn't pray for all the other lepers in Israel. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the, the shift in the feel in the room? I spent the first part of my career as a policeman uh, in London. And we were trained in riot control, and uh, we had a lot of fun hurling wooden blocks at each other behind shields uh, as we were training. And, uh, but one of the things they told us about riots, that the most dangerous crowds are the happy crowds. And the reason 
that, that happy crowds are dangerous, is that with all that positive emotion flowing through a group of people, it only takes one little thing, and instead of happiness, you switch to hate and violence on, on, a, on a dime. Happy crowds full of laughter and celebration can turn ugly and violent in a nanosecond. And so it proves here in this story. The crowd are incensed by the very notion that God might have concern and compassion for those who were the perceived enemies of Israel. And no doubt disappointed by the fact that they were not going to get a free miracle show for themselves, the crowd in the synagogue are enraged against Jesus. They drag him outside and decide that they will throw him off the cliff in a form of extrajudicial execution. Away with you, Jesus. We won't have any of your dangerous talk around here. How dare you? But at some point, and we're not really told how, he walks right through the crowd and leaves them. I entitled this passage, Surprising the Neighbors. He did. He surprises us too when you think about it. What does this little story tell us about Jesus, our neighbor? And what might Jesus have for us to learn about neighboring through a story like this one? Well, a few thoughts on that. The first thought is that neighborhoods can be challenging places. Now, this may seem like an obvious statement, but all neighborhoods are unique. They're comprised of unique individuals created in God's image and yet also broken as a consequence of the fall described in Genesis chapter 3. As such, every neighborhood, whether you describe it narrowly as the street you live on or more widely as the area of the city you live in, every neighborhood is a place of both challenge and opportunity. And it's clear from this story that Jesus himself found his Nazareth neighborhood challenging. This, after all, was the place where he was known. This is where he had made time and place to bless his neighbors. Surely, Joseph and Sons, the carpentry shop, was a place where good work was done in wood at fair prices. And yet here, where he launches his ministry as a prophet, and more than that, as the incarnate Son of God, he is almost instantly attacked and nearly gets himself killed. It's a reminder to all of us that neighborhoods are not necessarily going to be super receptive to the coming of Jesus the Lord. The second thing I think that we can take from 
this interesting little story is that the message of Jesus challenges us all. You see, the message that Jesus announced is one of good news, particularly to those on the edges and the margins. The poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed are specifically mentioned in Isaiah as those to whom good news of God's love, healing, and liberation will come. So any of us here this morning who can relate to being part of those groups should hear good news. Wow, God cares for us. Amazing, wonderful. We are not forgotten. We have a God in heaven who is looking out for us. But the same good news that is good news for those on the margins is sometimes threatening to the status quo. And those who are currently the rich and the powerful are not necessarily going to welcome it with open arms. They might say, well, what about us? Aren't we good people? Why does God seem to be caring for them and not so much for us? In our church board meeting on Thursday evening, we were wrestling with the implications of the great claim that Jesus is Lord. This, as you remember, was the claim made by the early church. And it was a claim that was a direct challenge to the Roman Empire that ruled pretty well everywhere at that time. So for Christians to say Jesus is Lord was to throw down the gauntlet to the other one who claimed to be Lord, who was Caesar. In fact, you had to greet Caesar with the phrase, Caesar is Lord. And the thing about lords is that there's only, there only really can be one Lord. And so when the early church said Jesus is Lord, they were basically saying Caesar isn't. And when the church in China, under the oppression of the Communist Party, chose to say Jesus is Lord, they were actually saying that the party isn't Lord. And that's a dangerous thing to do. We realized as the board that this claim that Jesus is Lord threatens our understandings of the control of our lives and our right to do what we want. You see, you can't have it both ways. If Jesus is Lord, we are not. And we don't actually then get the right to choose what we do with our lives, our resources, our friends, because we have put ourselves under the Lord. 
There was a story in, uh, on the CBC about a year and a half ago uh, about someone who got badly scratched when they picked up three kittens and took them to the vet. The discovery was made once they got to the vet that these weren't any ordinary kittens. They were bobcats. True story. And there's a danger when we mix up ordinary domestic kittens for wild animals like bobcats. Remember how we started singing this morning? Uh, Rebecca, thank you for that one. Lion and lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God, but he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And as C.S. Lewis often reminds us, he's not a tame lion. Don't mess with Jesus the Lord. He has deep claws, and he challenges all of us who would walk with him with this great question. Are you going to let me be the Lord? That's a serious question. Because the great tendency of the church is to try to domesticate the lion. We like him to be our God, Granville's God, my God. And he's bigger than that. And his agenda will not allow him to simply be our domestic pet. And we will find, if we try to do that, that we will get badly scratched in the process. Hear what I'm saying? He's not safe, but he's good. Final thought on this passage. Grace and truth hold together in Jesus. I don't think there's any doubt that Jesus loved his neighbors in Nazareth. But he needed them to know that his mission was one of love for the whole world, not just for them. And the mere fact that they were likely to reject the very idea that he had compassion for those they considered their enemies did not mean that he felt it necessary to tone it down or make it more accessible for them. You see, Jesus is bigger, stronger, wilder than we could ever imagine. And his commitment to his mission meant that although some would reject him, there would be others that chose to follow. I absolutely admit this is not a comfortable story. This is a challenging story. The call to love our neighbors has risk because to love them as servants of the Lord risks rejection. Not everybody can hear this good news. It's threatening. 
And yet it's good. The message of Jesus equalizes people. It reduces us all to the same kind of level. We're all broken people. We all desperately need something more than we can find in ourselves to make sense of life. And actually, we're all looking for something worth dying for. And Jesus, who felt that there was something worth dying for, went to the cross to die for us, for me. That's the good news. The good news is he went to the cross to die for you too. You are invited in. But beware, it's not a comfortable ride. It's a tough ride. It's a ride that challenges us at the deepest levels as we think about who really owns our lives. And if Jesus the Lord owns our lives, which is actually what all those of us who have been baptized have said, as we go down into the waters of baptism, we have a tank behind here for those of you that don't know this, uh, this building. But as people go down into the water of baptism, they're saying, the old me has come to an end. I am dead. The life of Jesus is now bubbling up in me. I am not my own anymore. I'm his. I'm to go where he sends me. I'm to walk at the instruction and urging of His Spirit that now comes to live in me. That's the reality. Comfortable? Nope. Good? Yes. Absolutely. Because in Him we find community, forgiveness, grace, mercy, and we're called to extend that. Even if our neighbors as they hear it, choose to reject. May our journey with neighbor-shaped spectacles into Luke's gospel challenge us and teach us about loving our neighbors well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came and that you lived and that you showed us what it means to live well. Lord, this is an uncomfortable passage. We, we prefer comfortable. We don't like to be disturbed. And yet you are the great disturber. And you are the one who is intent on bringing in a kingdom which turns the world upside down, actually right side up. And Lord, we want to be people who follow you and learn from you. Please forgive us for the times we've tried to domesticate you and have forgotten just who you are. Lord, would you get bigger in our viewfinders? Would we be overwhelmed with your greatness and majesty this morning? And as we worship, Lord, would we surrender again to your claim to be Lord of all, 
Lord of our lives, Lord of our possessions, Lord of our relationships, Lord of our neighborhoods, and Lord of our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the